Right. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. We are on part four. And though I don't know how many parts we'll have, but we're on part four of the two beasts. And let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, Father, as we look at it in Bible study this morning, the faithful prophets that you sent to your people to warn them. And we know that we have your word, which does the same for us. We ask this morning, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts as we think about the subject matter of idolatry and false gods and things that would vie for our worship. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts. We know, Father, apart from your grace, we are prone to set up things in the high places of our hearts. We ask that you would reveal our blind spots to us, that you would take your word, search us deeply, Father, and reveal to us that which needs to be confessed, forsaken, repented of. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us in your word this morning, that you would direct us to your truth. Help me, Father, give me strength to plainly proclaim your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So this happens frequently. Um, Mark and I, or whoever's teaching or preaching at the time, we don't coordinate in advance on what we're talking or preaching about. And I've just seen it so many times, time after time, how the Lord superintends the subject matter. So for all practical purposes, um, what I'm about to preach is a redo of Mark's Bible study this morning um, from a different vantage point. So if you heard that and, and you've adequately applied it, you're good. You can tune me out right now. But when the Lord tells us something twice on the same day, um, I think it bears listening to. And this was a convicting message for me. Um, it hurt my feelings. So I, I, well, I'm not going to apologize to you if it hurts your feelings, but um, the spirit of God will do with it as he sees fit. But this is something that's incredibly important for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are, just to give you a review of where we're, we are, we're continuing our look at the portrait of the second beast. Last time, we defined the second beast and began looking at the description of it that we find in verse 11, and we'll continue in verse 12 today. So what have we learned so far? Well, I want to draw your attention. We touched on this briefly two weeks ago. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 which is Paul's parallel passage that, that speaks to this second beast. And the question that, that comes up and we should ask ourselves as we look at the big picture, and Revelation gives us the big picture, why the two beasts? Why? Well, Paul makes it very clear, just as we studied in our Bible study this morning, why did the Assyrians take Israel captive? Why? They disobeyed. Idolatry. Idolatry. Listen to what Paul says after he goes through this long description of the false prophet. We call him the Antichrist. 
And he said in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. Listen, for those who are perishing, hear this closely, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned. If that doesn't frighten us, nothing will. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The big picture that we're looking at when we study these two beasts is that God is bringing judgment on this world. The two beasts that we are studying in Revelation 13 are God's judgment on unbelieving, on an unbelieving world who refuses to repent and believe the truth. Just so we understand that. Why did God bring the Assyrians and the Edomites and the Philistines? Why? To, to judge Israel for their disobedience and their idolatry. So just on the outset, so what have we learned so far? The second beast is the false prophet, as seen in Revelation chapter 16 and 19. This beast is the propagandist for the first beast. What is the first beast? Anybody remember? The first beast is corrupted or wicked state power. Why does God bring and allow wicked governments to rule? Judgment. Judgment. So the second beast is the false prophet, the propagandist for the first beast, who is the perverted sword or the wicked state power. The second beast represents the system of all religious seduction. That is, any and every false gospel that denies corrupts, or adds to the person or the work of the Lord Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, John is very clear in, in First and Second John, 1 John 2.22, who is a liar but he who denies what? That Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. What is the Antichrist doing? He's perverting the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John makes it very clear. Church, listen, he says. Understand the message of the Antichrist is anything that perverts the person and the work and what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. It is a false gospel. He says in 1 John 4, 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is what? The spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Second John, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess what? The coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? To redeem sinners. So the Apostle Paul said, of whom I am chief. Again, the message of the Antichrist perverts 
the gospel. But I want you to understand this. We looked, we looked at this last week. The the, the origin and the nature of this beast. Verse 11, and I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. When you picture a lamb, what do you think about? It is a picture that takes our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ in type. But if you see a lamb in a field, are you threatened by it? Are you like, man, I if I don't get out of this pasture, he is going to gore me and I will die. <laughs> no, you would say that to the big Brahma bull that weighs 3,000 pounds. But you see a little lamb and you're like, oh, isn't he cute? Harmless. That's the picture here. When we talk about these beasts, the beast is a description of what they are in their nature, in their character, not as what they look like to the world. The world would never be enamored with this beast, if they understood who it really was in its nature. But remember, we looked at eight things, and I want to give them to you briefly, just as a reminder. The beast is of this world. The beast of this world has its own mind, its own worldview, we would say. The beast of this world has its own cares. I want to revisit that this morning with our message the beast of this world has its own cares, its own anxieties. We looked at the parable of the sower two weeks ago. Remember, it, the cares of this world entangle and choke out the word of God. The beast of this world has its own loves. The beast of this world has its own friends. The beast of this world has its own spirit. The beast impersonates the lamb. And the beast speaks like a dragon. In other words, what he says comes from and is motivated by the devil. And lastly, last week or last time, we looked at the fact that we are kept by the Lord Jesus while we're in while we are in this world. John 16, 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. In John 17, when Jesus is praying. And conversing with the Heavenly Father, we, we get that, that inside look at the communion between the Father and the Son. The Lord Jesus does not say to the Father, take them out of this world. This is a bad, bad place. Take them out. Did Jesus know that this is a bad, bad place? Certainly he did. He was going to the cross in hours. And as he's praying to the Father and he's praying for us, what does he pray? Lord, I don't, I don't ask you to take them out of this world. I ask you to keep them in this world. There are two questions that as I study this, that keep coming to my mind. And one of the things that, that we see over and over as we study these two beasts is this concept of worship. Worship. When we when we go through our study in, in the kings, it's it's amazing to me that when it introduces the king and the timeline that it talks about, what does it immediately talk about regarding that king? What defines the king? Who does he worship? Remember? Over and over, every king without fail, he either followed the Lord or he followed the wickedness of his ancestors. And worship false gods. 
the overwhelming theme that we find regarding these two beasts is the, is the matter of worship. And, and so this question that keeps coming to my mind is I'm studying this, trying to extract fruit for you, to encourage you, to challenge you as I come into the pulpit. What, what are the things that the Lord is challenging me with? And the question that keeps coming to my mind is how am I to live and how am I to worship? You see, we think of these beasts as future. I don't have to worry about this right now. But the more I study this, the more I realize that it is referring to now. We are in the last days. When we studied Revelation um, chapter 13, the earlier verses were reminded that it was it's the same period as three and a half years is 42 months. And, and it's the period between the Lord's ascension and his return, that brief period of history that the scripture refers to as the last days. If that's true, and I believe it is, then these beasts that we're talking about are concurrent with us now. So what does that mean? How does that apply to me? Well, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It'll be a surprise. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will, will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter doesn't tell us that we should fret and worry about things that we cannot control, does he? The Lord is coming. And there are scoffers that Peter addresses earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3 that say well, that, that the promise of his coming has been for ages and ages, and he's not coming. He's not coming back. What are you worried about? And Peter reminds us that those things are in the Lord's hands, out of my control. But there is something that is incredibly important for me. Since all of these things will be dissolved and the Lord is coming back, what should I be doing? What should I be like? How should I be living? That's the important question, not the when that everybody's trying to put their finger on. And we all know that the reason we want to know the date is so that I can be, I can do what I want until I get to, well, let's see, we'll, we'll give it a week before we know the Lord's coming back. Then we'll get serious. I might even fast. But what should I be doing? What should I be like? First John 5, 19 through 21. John says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's discouraging. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. What is John saying? You, child of God, have been given truth. Now, what do we do with it? And he says something very interesting. The last words of his first epistle, verse 21, after he says, you know who is true and we are in him who is true. He says this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Why would he tell us that? Why would he tell us that? <laughs> because this world is infested with idolatry. 
infested with it. So if we believe that these two beasts are concurrent with the last days, and I do, verse 5 says that the first beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. This is the same period of time that the two witnesses um, prophesy in, in uh, Revelation chapter 11 that we looked at. Then how, this is my second question, how do these beasts manifest themselves in our lives and in the life of the church? What do we need to be looking for? What do we need to be alert to? You see, the picture of the second beast, the false prophet, is he looks like a lamb. So what does that mean to us? Well, John is writing to the seven churches. That should resonate. Because John is warning that the second beast, this false prophet who does everything he can to put the attention onto the first beast, he wants you to worship the first beast. That's his mission. That's his purpose. And he uses religious seduction to do it. Why should the church be concerned about this? Because I want you to see this. He looks like Jesus. That should get our antenna to go, hmm, what, what is the scripture warning me about here? I want you to know that, I, and I said this previously, these two beasts are manifestations of a corrupt world system. But this, this subject matter is not new. I want to give you a, a historical perspective. 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26. Jesse, you'll get to that eventually. Chapter 26, paragraph 4. Listen to this. This is on, of the church, the chapter is, is called. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Any disagreement with that? Is Jesus Christ the head of the church? Amen. We heartily say amen. And then many Reformed Baptist churches take the second part of this and throw it out because it's controversial. <laughs> this is what it says in the second part of the paragraph. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming? Any vagueness there? They were, they were perfectly clear in their minds. Now, this was written when? 1689. Right. You guys passed the test. You're so smart. You know, sometimes I wonder why I'm even up here. Um, this was written over 500 years ago. What's changed in 500 years? Excuse me. What's changed? Think about that while I read you some more quotes. Here's Martin Luther the German reformer who lived between 1483 and 1546. Quote, nothing else than the kingdom of Babylon 
and a very antichrist. For who is the man of sin and the son of perdition, but he who by his teachings and his ordinances increases the sin and perdition of souls in the church while he yet sits in the church as if he were God. All these conditions have now for many ages been fulfilled in the papal tyranny. Martin Luther weighs in. How about Calvin, the French reformer? We often think Calvin was Swiss, but he wasn't. He was French. He was in Switzerland because he was running from said Antichrist. Though it be admitted that Rome was once the mother of all churches, yet from the time when it began to the seat of Antichrist, it has ceased to be what it was before. Some persons think us too severe and censorious when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. But those who are of this opinion do not consider that they bring the same charge of presumption against Paul himself, after whom we speak and whose language we adopt. I shall briefly show that Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2 are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies to the papacy. Crystal clear. Now, I've got quotes and footnotes for all this, so if there's any of these quotes that, that you want to know where, where I got them from, I promise I'm not making them up. John Knox. John was a Scottish reformer. He says, quote, yea, to speak in plain words, lest that we submit ourselves to Satan, thinking that we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, for as for, as for your Roman Kirk, and that's the Scottish word for church, as it is now corrupted in the authority thereof, whereon stands the hope of your victory, I no more doubt, but that it is the synagogue of Satan, and the head thereof called the Pope to be that man of sin of whom the apostle speaks. Roger Williams, I, this is not the country singer, by the way. I think there's a Roger Williams. This is the Puritan pastor who was known as the founder of Rhode Island in the 1600s. Pastor Williams spoke of the Pope as the pretended vicar of Christ on earth who sits as God over the temple of God, exalting himself not only above all that is called God, but over the souls and consciences of his vassals, or vassals, however you prefer. Yea, over the Spirit of Christ, over the Holy Spirit, yea, and God himself, speaking against the God of heaven, thinking to change times and laws, but he is the son of perdition. Say, well, why don't we hear more about this? Well, it's just not that popular now. It's not very in vogue to criticize the Pope. Charles Spurgeon, we know that guy. Listen to what he said. It is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not the popery and the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. If there were to be issued a hue and cry for Antichrist, we should certainly take up this church on suspicion, and it would certainly not be let loose again, for it is so exactly answers the description. Popery is contrary. Listen to this. This is important. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. 
It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and for Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement and lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it, because it is against him, we shall love the persons though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls though we loathe and detest their dogmas. And so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces towards Christ when we pray. So the question then becomes, if the reformers were convinced 500 years ago, what would they say now? Roman Catholic Church is likely the wealthiest institution on the face of the earth. And I say likely because there's no way of knowing. They don't put that out there, but their estimated worth is in billions. With its own independent state, think about this. The Holy See, S-E-E, capital S, which is the Holy Seat or Vatican City. It is independent of Italy and it's, it has its own standing army, which is the Pontifical Swiss Guard Corps. So I was looking this up and the U.S. State Department on its own website, this is how they describe the Holy See. According to the U.S. State Department, this is currently, as of today, the Holy See is the universal government. Listen to this. It's, it, the Holy See is the universal government of the Catholic Church and operates from the Vatican City State, a sovereign, independent territory. The Pope is the ruler of both Vatican City State and the Holy See. The Holy See as a supreme body of government of the Catholic Church is a sovereign uh, judicial entity under international law. So this is something that maybe we should think about. So as we move into verse 12, we we look at the authority. If you can go to uh, the, sec the next slide, Jesse. Verse 12 talks about the authority of the beast. The scripture says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. So these two beasts are working hand in hand. And the scripture says, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. The beast exercises authority. And in the presence of the first beast, it's the Greek word poieto, to make to manufacture, to construct, to act, or to cause. And the, the same word is used, used twice in the same verse. The scripture says it exercises, and then it says, and makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. It's the same word. But the second beast makes clear, or he makes or clears the path for the first and, and this references, this gives us the idea of John the Baptist, one crying in the wilderness. But he does this with a Christ-like twist because he looks like a lamb. But remember, he speaks like a dragon. John here is emphasizing this unholy alliance between the first and the second beast and, and where both of them receive their authority to both persecute and deceive. 
They're both referenced together in Revelation 19, verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. There's a picture of worship again. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There is no doubt, according to God's word, what will happen to these two beasts. They will be judged and eternally judged. But I also want you to see that this the second beast has a satanically derived spiritual authority. And, and what he does with that authority is to exalt himself into the place of Christ. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come, or that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Listen, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So who has made this claim? And if we're talking about the period of time between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and his return, has anyone made a consistent claim since the ascension of the Lord Jesus up until now? And of course, the answer is yes. And here's just a sampling that we get to see within documented history. What I'm about to read you, I'm going to read you four or five quotes. These should offend you. If they don't offend you, something's wrong. The Pope and the God, or excuse me, the Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. Pope Pius V said that in the 1500s. Quote, but the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds therefore requires together with a perfect accord in, in the one faith, complete, listen, Complete submission and obedience of the will of the church to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. That is Pope Leo XIII. All the names, quote, all the names which in the scriptures are applied. Listen to this one. All the names which in the scriptures are applied to Christ by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope, unquote. Quote, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, God and the vicar of God. You say, well, these are quotes from old popes. Maybe they were just a little off their rocker, right? You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, all that kind of stuff. Well, if you go to the present day catechism on the Roman Catholic Church's website, paragraph 882, today says this, the Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, and as pastor of the entire church, listen, 
has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. These are self-made claims. Second part of verse 12 says, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. What does scripture mean here by worship? This is important. What is worship? We sang the song right before we started, oh, worship the king. What does that mean? My question to every one of us this morning is, who and what do we worship? The word in the Greek is proskineo, to do reverence, to bow down, to do obeisance. Properly to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior, to fall down, to prostrate oneself, to adore on one knee, on one's knees, to do obeisance. Calvin has a fantastic definition of worship. I want to give this to you. He wrote this in in um, a pamphlet he wrote on the necessity of reforming the church. He was spot on with the necessity of reforming the church. And he writes this, worship involves acknowledging God to be as he is, the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And thus worship is to ascribe and to render to him the glory of all that is good, to seek in all things in him alone. And in every want to have recourse in him alone. Good definition of worship there. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. What would that read? How would that sound if I replaced God in our definition of worship with the state? Because remember, the false prophet is pointing back to the corrupted state. He wants to see, he wants us to worship the state as God. Let me reread this. Worship involves acknowledging the state to be as it is the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And thus worship is to describe and render to the state the glory of all that is good to seek in all things the state alone and in every want to have recourse in the state. So how common within scripture was the blending of worship with the state? It was more common than we think. The blending of idolatry and government has always been present. <clears throat> we see it with the bondage of Israel and Egypt. Who was Pharaoh? What was the last plague addressing? Remember? Firstborn. Firstborn son. What was that? It was the continuation of the throne. And how did Egypt view Pharaoh? God. He was viewed to them as a God. Before and in the context of this, when God gives the Ten Commandments in the very first command, he says this. In Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you, what, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
So God, when he is introducing the Ten Commandments to Israel, does it in the context of who they were formerly in bondage to and who the nation of Egypt worshipped and who God delivered them from. You shall have no other gods before me. And then we find later Isaiah, and this, this resonates with what we talked about in our Bible study this morning. Who did King Ahaz go to when things got tough? He reached out to Assyria. What does God warn Israel about in Isaiah 30 and 31? Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Listen, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Woe to those, Isaiah 31, verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble. And he who, he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. We see in scripture this this corrupt marriage between worship in the state with the paganization of Israel and Judah, don't we? We talked about the kings and, and how they're defined by their worship. We see it with the remnant carried away into Babylon, don't we? What did Nebuchadnezzar say to Daniel and his friends? Well, I built this, and he, he has this purity test, if you will, where all the heads of his government are told to worship this monument that he builds. When you hear the, the sound of the music, you're to do what? You're to prostrate yourself. Same word for worship. And what happens if you don't? You die. You die. We see this same um, marriage, if you will, carried all the way through the book of Revelation. But what about in the context of the seven churches? Well, in John's day, and John was there to witness this, John chapter 19, we have this interesting marriage between religion and the government, if you will, and in, in wrapped up in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, don't we? When Pilate examined the Lord Jesus, what did he find? Nothing. God, what are you people so angry about. I find no fault in this man. Let's release him. And we have a tradition. You can release anybody you want. It was the Roman government's um, peace symbol to the to Israel, if you will. They released anybody of their choosing. And they said, give us Barabbas. And when he insisted that he was going to release Jesus, do you remember what he said? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. John chapter 19, verse 15, Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests, the chief priests answered, listen, we have no king, what? But Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Stephen Nichols writing in Table Talk, and the, the subject is a very short art, article I wanted to share with you. The article's title is, Who is Lord, Christ or Caesar? And he says this, in the AD 90s, Domitian ruled as emperor over Rome. His cruelty rivaled that of Nero. He insisted that he be worshipped as God. Christians, of course, could not participate in the rituals of this emperor cult. That left them vulnerable, and that vulnerability led to persecution. It is likely that John's exile to the island of Patmos directly resulted from Domitian's edicts. John refused to bow. John wrote Revelation during this time, and many scholars believe. Also, around this time, an early church figure named Clement served as bishop at Rome and sent a letter to the church at Corinth. Clement opens his letter by referring to the, quote, sudden and successive calamitous events, unquote. Persecution rolled over the church like wave after relentless wave. Clement wrote to comfort them and to exhort them to stand firm. Near the middle of his letter, he simply reminds the believers at Corinth that Christ is our leader and we are his soldiers. The mission's edict and the persecution that followed served to press an urgent question to the church. This question was there at the very beginning. It was there at the events surrounding the incarnation when Herod ruled. It was there when the soldier drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was there all along the excruciating and agonizing road to the cross. The question never left the early decades of the church or even the early centuries of the, of the church. The question was this, Caesar or Christ? The mission's edict made that question palpable, even visceral. Statues of him were sent all over the empire. On appointed days, feasts were held, and all of the populace had to pass before the cast image of the mission and bow before him as God. It was very clear, Caesar or Christ. The truth is that question is always there. It's always before us, before the church in every age of the past. The question is before us in our time today, and it will be in front of the church in the ages to come. Who is Lord? When the apostles and the believers in the pages of the New Testament answered that Christ is Lord and Caesar is not, ramifications followed. That decision had consequences. They did not let the temporal consequences overshadow the eternal ones. The author of Hebrews reminds the believers that they had, quote, endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated, Hebrews 10.32. Then he declares in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. When the question is put to us, Caesar or Christ, may we be among those who do not shrink back. May we take our stand alongside the first century church and the church through the centuries. May we not throw away our confidence. From this single point of the Lordship of Christ came the church's confidence. And also from this point came the church's conviction. This is a time for conviction and a time for confidence, unquote. So what about our time? See the history in scripture. We see the letters to the seven churches 
they had to deal with this. What about our time? How does it apply to us? I would ask this question of us this morning, how in our context, in the day in which we live, is the state deified? Is the state deified? Interesting question. Remember we said the beast has its own cares, worries, and anxieties. Question is, where do we go for recourse with our needs? We all have needs. How are those needs met? Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, regarding who is to supply our needs. Is that in doubt for us the saint? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Who is supposed to supply the needs of the saints? Remember, our Heavenly Father knows our needs. We looked at Matthew chapter 6 a few weeks ago. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Take no thought about tomorrow what you will eat or drink or wherewithal you will be clothed. The worries or the anxiety of tomorrow will be sufficient for themselves. But your Father knows what you need. So Jesus says, don't don't get tangled up in the worries and the anxieties of how your needs will be met because your father will take care of those. What you should worry about is seeking the kingdom of God. So what does our present day culture resort to regarding its needs? Think about this for a minute. From cradle to grave, Who is responsible for taking care of our children? We all got angry when our president said recently that your children are, quote, all our children. That infuriated a, a lot of us, and it should. But why would he say that? Well, from birth to age five, we have what is called Head Start. This is necessitated, think about this, by the breakdown of the family structure and the home. Since the home and marriages have broken down, both mom and dad are in the workforce, earning money, and what are they doing with that? They're paying tribute to Caesar. It is in the vested interest of Caesar for the family to be fractured. Mom and dad separated, both having to earn a living. And in exchange for our tribute, what does Caesar promise in return? Well, he will care for our children. He will educate us. He will feed us. He will clothe us. Caesar will medicate us. Caesar will even pay for and subsidize abortion with our Caesar-subsidized flexible spending accounts. Did you update your your annual health care with your company? Yeah, Caesar subsidizes that too. And by the way, Caesar will now pay for your college. Our American Caesar will house us. He will even take care of us in our twilight years with Medicare, food and housing subsidies. And what is the proof that Caesar is trying his best to be our God? Well, we're $33 trillion in debt. 
Our little Caesar God will soon be broken and collapse and by necessity make way for a newer, more efficient God who will exercise total control. Because it's unsustainable. Can't keep it up. Every one of the things that I just mentioned is an authoritarian encroachment on the family and the church. Remember, the beast exercises authority, but his exercising of authority is not in obedience to God. So I think about this and how it applies to us. I'm not saying just to be, I want to be totally clear. I'm not saying unless you homeschool your kids, you're in sin. It's not what I'm saying. Here's, here's what's before us as we think about an overwhelming authoritarian state. What area of your life does the state not have its hands in? What? What area of your life? Church. Mm. Ish. 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 Do we remember two years ago, right? Yeah. When can you worship? Well, when this little frightening disease goes away, you can worship. Until then, shut your doors. You shall not assemble together. What area does the beast not have its fingers in? See, this, this is the pressing question for me as I think about this. God has called us to be salt and light. And there are Christians walking around who would criticize Daniel because he served the king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Daniel, you shouldn't be doing that. But Daniel was salt and light where God put him, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. But here was the question. This is the probing question, not where I am. But can I be where I am without bowing the knee to the beast? Mm -hmm. That's the question. That's what hit me right between the eyes as I'm thinking about this. God has put each and every one of us in distinct, important places to be salt and light. How do I know when I shouldn't be there? The answer is very simple. Can I continue where I am in the place that I am without bowing my knee to the beast? That's the question. And it's a, it's, it's a question that every one of us has to ask ourselves. How am I to live? It is so easy to go along to get along. When we go to our jobs every day, when we go to school, we encounter different people, different situations. It's so easy to keep our mouths shut and not say or speak up for the truth just so that we don't create ripples. The question for our examination this morning is this, how am I to live? Who am I going to trust to supply my needs? Am I subjected to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ via his word? Or am I bowing my knee to the beast? We have to answer that question. And it's something that should cause us to examine ourselves. How do we examine ourselves? How do we examine ourselves? Well, the only way I can tell you is examining ourselves is not evaluating ourselves in light of someone else's perspective and opinion. Second Corinthians 10, four says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
What are the weapons of our warfare? He's referring to God's word here. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must think about our lives, big picture, in light of God's word. Who am I bending my knee to? Examine every circumstance, every friendship, every relationship, every business dealing in your life and ask yourself that question. Am I, am I submitted to the authority of God in this or am I bowing the knee to the beast? May God identify and demolish our idols with his word. And may our lives be marked by worship of the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the repeated reminder that we have. Lord, we know we are so prone to blind spots in our lives. Things that seem harmless, that somehow gain ascendancy and prominence in our lives and quickly get out of control and we worship them instead of worshiping you. As Mark reminded us in Bible study, idolatry is anything we turn to for our comfort. And as we are reminded this morning, it's also worship in turning to anything that would meet our needs that isn't you. Father, we look around us and our culture is not looking to rely on you. It's looking to meet its needs in what is convenient, what is easy, what is free without following your prescriptions and your word. Your work tells us, or your word, your word tells us that we're to put food on our tables by, by work. Your word tells us that we're to take care of each other first in our families, then in our churches. Nowhere in your word do we find admonition to go down to ask the beast for help. The question is, will we trust you when things get hard and things get difficult? We ask that you would help us to answer that question with clarity, that we would resolve ourselves, that we will worship you and nothing else. We ask for your help, Lord, and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.